This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, August 25th, 2015, episode 15, concerning the relics of Simon de Montfort. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and today we're wrapping up the tale of Simon de Montfort and the Second Baron's War as narrated in the Melrose Chronicle. Last episode, Simon died, falling in battle against the army of Prince Edward, the future Edward I. Now, normally we might expect that to be the end of the story. Death is a pretty natural stopping point, but for our chronicler, Simon's death just marks the transition into the next phase of his career. Simon has graduated from being an advocate for the interests of the English people and the English barons uh, before the crown to being an advocate for human petitioners before the kingdom of heaven uh, because he has become a saint, or at least that's the case that the Melrose Chronicle is making. There is a tradition of taking an instance of political martyrdom and recasting it as religious martyrdom. Uh, Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, murdered in the cathedral as a direct consequence of his disputes with uh, King Henry II, um, is probably the most most famous uh, successful example of this in England. On the subject of these political saints, um, the historian Robert Bartlett highlights an interesting paradox which is that though promoting rebels and uh, divisive reformers as saints is clearly itself a political statement, in the long run, sainthood tends to depoliticize these figures. Uh, As saints, they are reintegrated into the political status quo. You see this with Thomas Becket, who is transformed from a disruptive force into a national icon. So, Though he dies essentially for a political cause, the fact of the martyrdom itself rather steals the thunder away from the political reasons uh, for why it happened. I think we can see a bit of that happening in similar ways with modern victims of assassination. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy spring to mind, where the narrative and horror of the assassination itself takes over and tends to blur out for us just how controversial and divisive these leaders were up until the moment of their death. You can see a bit of this in the treatment of Simon de Montfort after his death. Uh, And for this analysis, I'm drawing on an article by Thomas J. Heffernan um, on the attempt to canonize Simon after his death. Um, And you can check out our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, for Full references, both to the Heffernan article and the um, Bartlett book that I I mentioned earlier. Uh, Heffernan notes that before his death, Simon is described by contemporaries in ways that emphasize his effectiveness as a military commander, which includes a degree of acknowledged ruthlessness and brutality. It's a portrait of a complicated and ambitious personality, um, not just uh, a portrayal of some paragon of virtue. But after his death, Simon is, uh, to quote Heffernan, celebrated almost exclusively in sacred panegyric. Uh, So you can see a prickly and problematic figure being reduced to 
um, a single, simplistic, and purified moral narrative. Now, in the Melrose Chronicle, we do have this smoothed-over sainthood story being told. But as I pointed out in one of the prior episodes, uh, the chronicler is very aware of the counter-narrative that's out there that presents Simon as a traitor and unlawful usurper of the king's power. Uh, So it can't tell the saintly Simon story simply by assertion. It has to frame it as a rebuttal to the condemnation of Simon, uh, and that keeps the political critique uh, very much alive in this version. The political power and fervor that surrounded the veneration of Simon in the immediate wake of the war is attested to by one clause in a document called the Dictum of Kenilworth, which functioned as a kind of treaty that spelled out the terms of reconciliation between the royalist and the baronial factions at the end of the war. Clause 8 of the dictum reads, Humbly begging both the Lord Legate and the Lord King that the Lord Legate shall absolutely forbid, under distraint of the church, that Simon, Earl of Leicester, be considered to be holy or just, as he died excommunicate according to the belief of the Holy Church and that the vain and fatuous miracles told of him by others shall not at any time pass any lips, and that the Lord King shall agree strictly to forbid this under pain of corporal punishment. So, unlike the case of the murder of Thomas Becket with Henry II's ultimate public display of penance, Henry III and Prince Edward have no interest in adopting any kind of conciliatory posture as far as Simon goes. Nonetheless, there is a moderately flourishing cult of Simon in the decades after his death. Um, And I say nonetheless, uh, but of course the prohibition against the cult itself proves the fervor of the movement. Bartlett suggests that one way the cult was able to flourish, despite royal condemnation, was that there was no single tomb or shrine for Simon contained inside a church where access could be controlled and policed. Instead, many of the pilgrimage sites were places on the Evesham battlefield where the Earl fell, uh, and these were harder to keep people away from. And Heffernan argues that Simon's cult was quite a populist one, with followers largely, uh, though not exclusively, drawn from the peasantry, um, which also accounts for the emphasis on corporal punishment of offenders in the Dictum of Kenilworth, um, because that's how you bring those bestial, wrong-headed peasants into line— with a good beating. But we're about to read a series of the vain and fatuous miracles told of him in the Melrose Chronicle. So how can our chronicler get away with this and escape beating? Well, it helps that Melrose Abbey is in Scotland, which puts it somewhat at a remove from the rod of the King of England. Uh, But despite the efforts of our chronicler and many balladeers and the monks of Evesham and others lost to history who all pitched for the holiness of Simon and the rightness of his cause, he never got his sainthood. Nevertheless, he has retained a legacy as an early representative of populist and constitutional values in England, and the lasting effect of his death in battle is perhaps that it spared him from what might well have become a much uglier career as a dictator Uh, and maybe even ultimately a regicide. Who knows? But let's look at the posthumous career he did get, uh, at least in the imaginations of his loyal supporters. Today's passage picks up immediately following where we left off last episode, uh, reading from Stevenson's translation. 
Simon has been killed in the Battle of Evesham and dismembered by his enemies. Uh, alongside him fell one of his chief advisors, Hugh Dispenser, and it is with Hugh's body that our chronicler begins. Thus, upon the death of Simon and Hugh Dispenser and the other nobles of the land, there was a great lamentation among the people of England. But this was afterwards turned to equal joy, while the mighty acts of God were shown forth in the precious death of his saints. For God gave many miracles of the undoubted holiness of Hugh. At his tomb the blind received their sight, the lame walked, and many were the wonders which God performed for him a privilege which he obtained from God, for he was always truly just to the best of his ability as far as regards his dealings, both towards God and man, a course from which he could never be withdrawn. So therefore, after his death, God worked divine wonders through him, for during his whole life, up to the hour of his death, he always held the accurate line of truth. But did the Almighty God leave Simon unprovided with the power of working miracles? Certainly not. Therefore, we have thought it good to introduce here an account of a few of these miracles, which were done by him through God's power. It happened that immediately after he had been killed and stripped of the arms in which he had been clad, some of the sons of Belial came up and cut the hands and feet off the corpse. And it is respecting one of the hands that the following narrative is told. There was a certain man, belonging to the frontier lands of Wales, an inhabitant of the county of Chester, who had been in the Battle of Evesham, along with Edward, and who, after the battle, became possessed of this hand of Simon's, about which I have been speaking. He sent it to his wife, by a companion as wicked as himself, thinking that she would be rejoiced at the death of their enemy, of which this hand was a conclusive proof. The attendant, on his arrival at his master's farm, did not find the lady of the farm at home, but he hastened on to the parish church where she was, which was situated at no great distance from his lord's dwelling-house. When he arrived there, carrying in his bosom the said hand wrapped up in a cloth, he went up to the lady, and whispering in her ear he told her of the death of Simon, and he added, See, here is a token that he is killed, intending to show her the hand which had been cut off. But the woman, not liking to be put to the blush, or perhaps fearing God, refused at that time either to look at the hand or to touch it, although the retainer of her husband earnestly urged her to take what he had brought and keep it in her own possession. As he was entreating her to act thus wickedly, the lady said, Keep it covered up until divine service is finished. Obeying his lady's commands, he withdrew and took his place among the crowd that he might hear the mass. And it happened that at the elevation of the blessed host, as the people were lifting up their hands, this attendant also lifted up his hand to adore the Lord, whom the priest had just elevated. Behold, the hand of the holy man, whom this servant of a bond slave of the devil was carrying, was, without any assistance whatever on his part, raised up above his head by God's power, in order that thus the supremacy of his exaltation might be perceived all the more clearly, towering above every head, even that of the tallest man of all the multitude there assembled. And having thus adored the Lord of Majesty at his elevation, as I have stated, when the priest bowed himself before the altar to adore the Lord, quicker than language can express, it again stooped to the same place whence it had gone out, 
not without the power of God, for the cloth into which it had been sewn was found to be as firmly stitched together as it had been at the first, nor could the bearer discover any alteration in it. Deliberating upon the wondrous nature of this miracle, the woman, of whom I have spoken, feared God, and said to the attendant after Mass had ended, Carry back to my husband that hand which has been sent me by you, for it shall never cross my door. For she had been stricken with a wonderful astonishment at the sight of such an unprecedented and unheard-of miracle. And therefore she said to her husband's retainer, The man, whoever he is, who cut off that hand, deserves the severest punishment. And then she privately told the messenger about the vision which she had seen. For although many of the faithful of Christ who were there present had seen it, yet this privilege had not been vouchsafed to all of them. And she commanded him honestly to tell his Lord, when he returned to him, about the vision of which he had heard. Then the servant hastened off upon his return to his master, carrying the hand with which he had been entrusted, for he had not even entered the house of his mistress, as she had vowed it, in consequence of the hand of which he was the bearer. Hence it appears that she was one of those foolish virgins who, in their folly, rejected this hallowed hand. Yet this was not done without the counsel of God, who disposes every action. For that son of Belial, her husband, was unworthy to have in his house a hand of such exceeding sanctity, and so it was believed that it had passed over, by God's providence, to an owner much more worthy of it. But how or where it is, I am entirely ignorant. Yet of this I am sure, and this I firmly believe, that at the daily elevation of the health-giving host, this Simon, during his lifetime, was in the constant habit of raising up his hands with the most intense devotion, with the most earnest love towards Christ, and that he raised up his hands in this spirit of devotion, the surest and most infallible token of which we can have is this, that, as has been recounted, his dead hand was raised up in adoration of the Redeemer of the world, who was born of a most clean virgin. Hence it is that I call to remembrance the remark which occurs in that little treatise written about the Battle of Lewis, to the effect that Simon was endowed with divine wisdom. For what can a man do in this life which is wiser, truer, and better than to love, honor, and adore his Creator from his inmost heart? That Simon did this I doubt not, and therefore I conclude this miracle, and hasten on to recount another which the Almighty God did through his instrumentality. The hands of this man are surely much more holy in the sight of God than the hands of Scipio, which Seneca adored, as appears in the last chapter of the twelfth book of a treatise, On the Twelve Degrees, of which Seneca himself is the author. Close by a certain town in Northumberland is a celebrated house of the canons of the Premonstratensian order, who there serve God. One of Simon's feet was carried to this house by a man of happy memory, the Lord John de Wessey, the Lord of the Borough of Annick, the founder and patron of this house of the canons of which I have spoken. After it had remained here for several months, it was found that it was without any corruption whatever. To secure the continuance of such an extraordinary instance of incorruption, which had thus deservedly exhibited itself in the foot of this holy man, the canons of the same abbey, it is called the Abbey of Annick, for it is situated near the town of Annick, out of reverence to God the Creator, made a shrine of the purest silver in the shape of a shoe for this foot of incorruption. This foot exhibited a wound, which was visible between its lowest joint and the joint which is immediately connected with it, which, whether it were made by a hatchet or a sword, I will not decide. For the person who cut off the foot of the holy man 
was not contented with the numerous mutilations which he had inflicted upon the body of the holy man, but was unhappy until his cruelty vented itself by this additional wound on the foot. It happened that, about this time, a very rich burgess of Newcastle-upon-Tyne became exceedingly ill, so much so that he was nearly deprived of the entire power of motion. He could not even stir one of his feet from the bed on which he was lying. He could not raise his hand to his mouth. He could not discharge any bodily function whatever, nor would he permit anyone to touch him, for such was the extremity of suffering to which he was reduced through this disease, which pervaded his entire body, that he preferred to die rather than to be moved from his bed. So intolerable was the burden of his infirmity. One night he heard a voice which said to him as he was dreaming, Rise up tomorrow morning, and you will find that your disease is somewhat abated. Go to Anak, and in the abbey of the Premonstratensian canons of that place you will discover the foot of Simon de Montfort, and from that foot, said the voice, you will obtain an entire cure. Very early in the morning of the next day he found, on arising from his bed, his disease was to some little extent alleviated, as the divine voice had predicted to him. But it cost him some considerable pain to mount his horse, but he did this, and as speedily as he could go he went to Anak. As soon as he reached the house of these religious, he dismounted from his horse as best he might, and hastened without delay to visit the foot of the holy man. No sooner did these devout canons see this, than two of their number, that they might shorten the journey of this burgess to the place where the foot was deposited, for he was still exceedingly ill, and they were apprehensive that he could not endure the fatigue of walking thither, two of them, I repeat, reverently carried the foot along with the shoe in which it was deposited from the place in which it was usually kept to meet the invalid. Before he came so near as to be able to kiss the shoe, the merits of Simon were so effectual with God that this man was permitted entirely to recover his health, simply by the sight of the shoe. Reflect, then, how great glory must exist in this foot of Simon when it shall be reunited with the entire body after the general judgment, since the single limb was so effectual even before the judgment that the power of healing shone forth even from the lifeless substance in which it was enshrouded, this shoe of silver. For the power of God thus invisibly issued forth from the foot through the shoe so as to make the sick man whole. Nor was the other foot left without the honor of a miracle, as we may piously believe. This foot had been sent to Llewellyn, the prince of the Welsh, who had entered into a treaty with Simon, the subject matter of which has been open to suspicion, and on which I do not touch, on account of the evil surmises which are afloat respecting it. For Simon was open to some mistrust, for the whole of the royal jurisdiction was at this time in his hands, along with the person of the king whom he was keeping in custody, with the advice of the barons. Now, because Simon had promised to give his daughter to Llewellyn, as we've already stated, uh, who did, indeed, marry her afterwards, it was for this very reason that the other foot of the former was sent as a present to the latter, and this was done as an insult to both the one and the other of them, that by this compliment the prince might perceive how much the English hated him for his connection with this Simon. Now, about the hand of Simon, of which I have already made mention, I am uncertain whether it is that of which I have already spoken, or the other about which I have hitherto said nothing. But, as I have been informed by Thomas de Stangrief, the Lord Abbot of the Monks of Riveau, a man of the most venerable sanctity, that one of Simon's hands is kept at Evesham, in a place of the greatest veneration, 
we may piously believe that it has not been left there by God without some miracles having been exhibited. For God does not so highly exalt one part of a man by honoring it with the power of working wonders, and yet leave another part of it without this same privilege. We must therefore believe for a truth, in my opinion at least, that as for the other hand and foot of Simon, respecting the power of which to work miracles I have been silent, God Almighty has indeed condescended to perform wonders by them, as was well-pleasing to his Godhead. So thus concludes, for our purposes at least, the saga of Simon de Montfort. Well, almost concludes it. I have one more short text uh, that I thought I'd add in here. As I mentioned earlier, the cult of Simon de Montfort is documented in a number of texts besides historical chronicles. One of these is known as the Miracula de Simon de Montfort. The Miracula is a catalog of miracles attributed to Simon and his relics as experienced by about 205 different individuals. It consists of a series of items that provide names, dates sometimes, uh, places, and brief descriptions of the nature of the miracles, uh, some of which are little paragraph-long narratives, um, and others are little more than you know, brief labels. The surviving text is found in uh, the British Library manuscript Cotton Vespasian uh, A6. It was probably written by a monk of Evesham Abbey and covers about a decade of time running from 1265, sort of right after Simon's death, uh, to 1277. And it was presumably you know, written fairly near to or even during that time and sort of added to. Thomas J. Heffernan's article, uh, which I mentioned earlier, analyzes the miracula and finds some interesting things. For example, among the recipients of miracles, all three of the medieval estates, uh, the aristocracy, the clergy, and the peasantry, uh, are represented. However, the majority of the petitioners, um, 153 out of the 205, come from the lowest estate, uh, which is further evidence for the idea that Simon's cult was a populist movement. Anyway, I thought I'd add to the relic stories of the Melrose Chronicle by reading a few of the items from the Miracula. Unfortunately, there isn't a full translation of the Miracula available, uh, at least not that I was able to find. And while I'd love it if I had the time uh, and the skill to do a translation myself, um, I don't. Uh, but I did find a tiny selection of items from the Miracula translated as an appendix to George Walter Prothero's 1877 book, The Life of Simon de Montfort. Uh, so I'll read you those as a kind of sampler platter of the catalog of the miracles of Simon. And you'll even get to hear a second and much more condensed version of one of the relic miracles that we've just heard in the Melrose Chronicle. One quick context note is that a couple of the miracles here refer to the Earl's Well, which was a small spring near the hill where the Battle of Evesham was fought. Um, and this spring was thought to have acquired miraculous properties after the Earl's death, um, and it became one of those hard-to-police open-air pilgrimage sites that I alluded to earlier. We also have another reference to a practice we've encountered before, um, that of measuring a sick person as part of the process of obtaining a miracle cure. 
um, and you can see episode 8 for more about that particular custom. Okay, here we go. The Countess of Gloucester had a palfrey that had been broken-winded for two years. In returning from Evesham to Tewkesbury, the horse, having drunk of the Earl's well and having had its head and face washed in the water, recovered. Of this the Countess and all her company are witnesses. A sick woman of Elmley sent her daughter to the Earl's well to fetch water. In returning she met the servants of the castle, who asked her what she had in the pitcher. She answered that it was new beer from Evesham, and they said, Nay, but it is water from the Earl's well. But when they had drawn some forth, they found it as the girl had said, and so they let her go. And when she came to the sick woman, it was again changed into water, and the sick woman, having drunk thereof, was healed. It is to be remembered of the hand of Simon that the bearer of it was journeying by a certain church, and hearing the bell toll for mass, entered in and prayed. And when the priest stood up to elevate the body of Christ, the hand moved and stood upright and adored Jesus, as it was wont while yet alive. William, surnamed Child, had a son who was sick to death, at which William was sore grieved. By chance a certain friar preacher, an old companion of his, came to him, and seeing his grief, asked him if he had ever been at enmity with Earl Simon. And he said, Yes, for he deprived me of my goods. And the other answered, Ask pardon of the martyr, and thou shalt recover thy child. Meanwhile the child died, and the father in great grief threw himself upon his bed and slept. And he saw in a dream Christ descend from heaven and touch him, saying, Whatever thou askest in the name of my earl shall be given thee. And he rose in haste and measured the boy, and he opened his eyes. Of this Clement of London and the father of the dead boy are witnesses. Stephen Hull and others, citizens of Hereford, relate a wonderful thing about Philip, chaplain of Brentley, who reviled the Earl, and said, If the Earl be a saint, as they say, may the devil break my neck, or some miracle happen before I come home. And as he asked, so it came to pass, for in returning home he saw a hare, and pursuing it, fell from his horse. Of this the whole city of Hereford bear witness. So there you have some miracle quickies. On the subject of the miracle of the hand, I think the Melrose Chronicles version really reveals an oral tradition being rather imperfectly synthesized into a singular written narrative. Uh, it's a nice example of that phenomenon. It's full of strange, contradictory elements. Now, because it's a miracle story, it has a kind of built-in immunity to plot hole criticisms, um, but nevertheless, here are a few of the oddities that pop out when you start trying to analyze this tale. First, there's considerable ambiguity about the nature of the miracle. It's both presented as a miraculous physical occurrence, 
uh, it's emphasized that the hand gets out of the bag without disturbing the stitching that seals it shut. Um, but it's also described as a vision only seen by some of the faithful gathered there. So this means that either it was a spectral hand, um, the simplest rationale, or that the hand was physically present and rising up, but cloaked from the sight of many by yet another miracle. Or perhaps in the spirit of transubstantiation, we can say, uh, as the meme goes, it can be two things. But adding to the murkiness of this story, it's also unclear if the servant witnessed the miracle. We're told that uh, the bearer could not detect any change in the stitched shut uh, fabric, which suggests he was prompted to investigate after seeing the miracle. Uh, but then the wife quite deliberately has to describe the miracle to him and dispatches him back to her husband with instructions to relate uh, quote, the vision of which he had heard. It seems to me that these kinds of inconsistencies are characteristic of someone trying to reconcile multiple variations of a story uh, that are each slightly differing in their details. So the vivid detail of the stitch-shut bag is perhaps drawn from one version of the story that emphasized the physical presence of the hand uh, and was maybe a bit more focused on the courier, um, who we might note is the only character shown in the a short miracula version of this miracle. Um, and that detail gets bolted on to a different circulating version that's uh, more about the wife, who um, is sometimes identified in other accounts, uh, specifically as the wife of Roger de Mortimer, the man who is often credited with dealing the fatal blow to Simon in the Battle of Evesham. But this welding job isn't seamless. And thank goodness, because otherwise an entire field of source study and textual analysis would be stymied. And, you know, if you could take just a fraction of the energy that people put into documenting continuity errors in movies uh, in order to fill up the IMDb goofs pages, um, if you could take that energy and channel it towards ancient and medieval texts, uh, you know, we'd have a renaissance in folklore departments around the world. Okay, well, just two more quick notes about Simon's relics before we go. Um, the first, uh, to cap off the miracle of the hand discussion, uh, is just to highlight one other slightly curious little detail. Uh, the line about, quote, And it happened that at the elevation of the blessed host, as the people were lifting up their hands, this attendant also lifted up his hand to adore the Lord. Uh, now, I can't speak for the diversity of practices in Catholic masses that one finds around the globe, but I haven't been to any American masses where the congregation lifted their hands up during or after the consecration of the host. Uh, and so that's just a small reminder of the ecstatic element in the rituals of the medieval church um, that's been considerably toned down, uh, at least in Western white middle-class Catholicism um, in the intervening centuries. And as much as we might think of the Catholic Church with its vestments and crucifixes and ritual routines as a, a kind of medievalistic survival, um, in some respects, the atmosphere of a signs and wonders type evangelical meeting, you know, speaking in tongues and snake handling and holy tears, uh, that might be a bit closer to the medieval experience of faith. The second thing I want to mention is just a little justification uh, for a bit of my own textual emendation from a couple of episodes back. In our first Simon de Montfort episode, uh, episode 13, 
um, at the end of that, I read a ballad about the Battle of Lewis, uh, and part of that ballad went as follows. Sir Simon de Montfort hath swore by his foot. At least, that's what I read. The team's Middle English text that I was using actually had the line, swore by his top, um, top meaning head. Now, top apparently is the word that appears in the Harley Lyrics manuscript in which this ballad is preserved. Um, but some editors have suggested emendations to this. Um, three earlier editions keep top, two use cop instead, and foot is used by only one editor, according to the team's footnotes. But I'm casting my lot in with the minority opinion. Partly, this is because the other end-line words in that stanza, uh, the things top is supposed to rhyme with, are Hugh de Bigot, Scott, and Pot, so both top and cop would be slant rhymes unlike uh, foot, or as it would be spelled in Middle English, F-O-T, which in Middle English pronunciation still might not be a perfect rhyme, but it would, it would be a lot closer. Um, now, achieving a more perfect rhyme is not itself especially good evidence for making a textual emendation. Uh, though it must be said that no other stanza in this particular ballad um, uses slant rhyme. But I think if you add that to the context that Simon's foot would go on to have its own career as a noted relic, then I think the argument by swore by his foot as the original line becomes quite compelling, uh, even against the evidence of the Harley manuscript, which we might remember was copied out a century after the probable origins of the ballad. So that's a case study. Um, so if you're good at nitpicking movies and like arguing about whether something is a continuity error or a deliberate choice on the part of the filmmakers, um, then you too might have a promising career in philology awaiting you. All right, it's riddle time. Last episode, we had a deep thought riddle. It was, Tell me what is dearest to a man during his life and loathliest after his death. Uh, this riddle comes from the Old English dialogue of um, Adrain and Rithius, a translation of which is included in Kimball's 1848 edition of the Dialogue of Solomon and Saturn. So what is dearest to a man during his life and most loathsome to him after death? The answer provided in the dialogue is, I tell thee his own will. Now, the Old English of this is, Itch de sedja his willa. Now, willa does translate to will, or the faculty of being able to choose or intend to act, um, but willa can also mean desire or wish, and frequently carries connotations specifically of the desire for pleasure or delight. Um, so that's why one's will is cherished during life, because it leads you to pleasure, and despised after death because you're going to be paying for your lust for earthly delights in the afterlife. I mean, you could also read the riddle in a more purely philosophical sense with the idea that free will makes you responsible for your own mistakes, you know, carnal or otherwise, um, which again, you'll pay for on Judgment Day. Anyway, so what's our new riddle? Here's a rhyming riddle that, and here's a hint, is related to a current event here in the fall of 2015. Here's the riddle. There is a little beast to all he's known, whom, if you catch, 
you'll hesitate to own, and if you catch him not, to come along he's prone. Once again, that is, there is a little beast to all he's known, whom, if you catch, you'll hesitate to own, and if you catch him not, to come along he's prone. All right, I'll be back with the answer in our next episode. Um, I realize I've been very bad with my scheduling for the past few months. Um, and I know from my own experience as a podcast listener um, that that can be quite frustrating. Uh, I certainly have my podcast routines. And when a show I'm expecting uh, isn't there on its normal weekday, it throws me off. Um, so I'm really going to try to be better about regularity this fall. Uh, and that might mean we'll have some shorter episodes uh in the mix. Um, but I, I don't think that's a, a bad thing in balance. Uh, so I'm aiming to be back in two weeks with a new old text to share. Fingers crossed. Until then, you can find us at MedievalDeathTrip.com and you can follow the show on Twitter at MDT Podcast. And if you have any longer comments, questions, or corrections, you can reach me by email at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And let me wish you a happy back-to-school season where applicable, and to everyone else, thanks for listening.